Welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast. I'm meteorologist Kirsty Zontini. And I'm meteorologist McCall Vrydags. This is a podcast all about weather. We are two broadcast meteorologists in Dayton, Ohio. And we just can't stop talking about weather. So when we're not on TV, we figured why not jump behind the mic to answer your weather questions and talk about all things meteorology. Now remember, you can listen to Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast anytime you want on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and WHIO.com. Hey, McCall. Hey, Kirsty. We got a special, special guest today. Yes, we do. And it's something that, I mean, everyone has to see and hopefully think about and hopefully respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is our first responders. Absolutely. Our firefighters, our police officers, our paramedics. Um, you know, their job is 24 hour, 365. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter what the weather is, they still will be there to save your life. Yeah. Um, it might be a little more obvious maybe in the winter or when we have extremes like really hot or really cold weather that you stop and go, man, yeah, their job is hard every day, but it's really hard when you've got a whole nother set of factors, which is the forecast. Yeah. And you did a really good in-depth story several months ago during the wintertime talking mm-hmm. about first responders and um, how they have to deal with the elements of yeah. weather, whether it is hot or cold. Right. And I mean, I don't know if it's just to me in the winter, it seems really um, extreme. And I think there's more visually obvious ways that you're like, wow, that's dangerous to drive in. Or how are the ladders mm-hmm. making it up there when it's this cold? But in the summertime, too, I mean, when you have high heat, it's hard for us to walk outside. Yeah. And these men and women have really heavy equipment and a lot of stuff to deal with. So we have in our community, uh, he's a really special guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he has uh, been, you know, working for more than 34 years as a firefighter and a paramedic. Uh, this is Chief Jeff Leeming. We're going to talk to him in just a minute. But just a few things about Chief Leeming. Um, he is our uh, fire chief in Sugar Creek, which is a township in the Dayton area, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, but previously, he was also the chief deputy state fire marshal. He's been the executive director of EMS and worked for the city of Xenia Fire for 27 years. And he rose through the ranks doing that, becoming the chief then in 2003 there. He also has a master's degree in public administration from Central Michigan University. So um, he has been a dedicated first responder in the Miami Valley, um, you know, for gosh, more than three decades now. Mm -hmm. Chief Leeming, hello. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. We're good. It's lovely weather. (laughs) Today it is. Beautiful today. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Is it days like this when it's sunny, warm, and not too muggy that you you smile and you think about your work day? Hopefully, is a little bit easier, maybe. Well, it, any day is uh, that 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 it's sunny and and uh, it's not too humid. It, it's it's good for for us. Yes, uh, just like anyone else. Yeah, we want to start and kind of talk a little bit. Let's do first the summertime impacts because that's the season mm-hmm. we're in, and especially locally. I mean, we've had ten ninety degree days so far, and these aren't just hot days. These were days also that it was very humid, so the heat index was over a hundred at times. Um, when you've got your crews out and they're responding to a fire, I guess just like paint a picture for people. A, the fire itself is hot, just being that close mm-hmm. to the scene. But then what's it like when it's hot and humid too? Well, we start off the day actually preparing for uh, extreme weather. And if um, 
we've even gone to allowing our staff to start wearing even shorts for their uniforms wow. uh, when the heat index is going to be uh, above 90 or more. Mm-hmm. Um, we ask for them to really kind of prepare themselves, um, make sure that they hydrate during the day, but we also um, put water coolers and additional bottles of water on our pieces of equipment. And um, if it is that high um, heated environment, we'll call additional resources and create like a rehab center if we have a, an incident that's going to go uh, for any length of time at all. Wow. That way we can kind of get them in the back of a medic and, and cool down our employees and kind of rotate them in about every 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, if, if you're working in extreme heat conditions and, and um, you're susceptible very easily to um, heat exhaustion, mm-hmm. heat cramps, uh, heat stroke uh, type issues. Wow. When when you talk about, um, you know, shorts for the uniform, but when you guys are fighting a fire, how how much, um, I guess, of the equipment, how much does that weigh extra on, on a man or a woman? Uh, 70 to 75 pounds for the turnout gear and uh, the SCBA or the air pack is, is on average what we're wearing. So not only are you, uh, you know, you're isolated from the products of combustion, which is mainly the heat and, and smoke. Um, and that provides a barrier of protection, but that there's a lot of weight to that. So mm-hmm. that weight, added weight just adds to the stress uh, and in a heated environment that really rapidly uh, zaps a, a person's energy. And, and uh, we really have to monitor our folks if we're in an environment like that, whether it be training or a, a real incident. We have to monitor them very closely yeah. um, and, and make them force them to take uh, kind of a break and, and go into a rehab area. Is it ever hard for your first responders to actually get them to take breaks? I mean, I would uh, assume you guys are probably pretty focused on what you're doing. It's uh, a structured organization. So the fire service, is, uh, we, have, we have command staff that will pretty much establish what's going to be the direction. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you're not going to allow a firefighter to say, no, I don't need a break. We, we will force them to mm-hmm. take a break. Yeah. Just, just so that they don't... Um, you know, a lot of people will try to tough it out and say, "I, I, I don't need a break. I can do more." Um, no, we, we're gonna we're gonna put everybody kind of in a timeout after they've been working or um, you know exhibiting a lot of uh, or, or working in a high heat or or stressful mm-hmm. environment or even any uh, any outdoor um, activities that they're doing where they're going to be uh, potentially dehydrated. So we're gonna get them out and um, and slow them down a little bit. If you have a new recruit, I know I grew up uh, just across the street from a firehouse, and I'm always seeing them doing training. How do you train someone that's new to the department um, to really handle this type of heat in this type of situation? Well, it's both ways. I mean, extreme cold has its own Mm -hmm. set of dynamics, but in extreme heat, um, training is is accomplished. Um, We we will still train. We recently had uh, some uh, live fire evolutions where we had folks, um, and it was one of those 90-degree days yeah. where we had three consecutive uh, training days of, of high-heat environment. Um, and, and we would go through an evolution and, and kind of take a time out and, and make sure we peel out of the gear, mm-hmm. um, get them hydrated again. Uh, in a lot of cases, when we're in a training event, we'll even take uh, vital signs to make sure that we're monitoring their status. And um, if somebody has a problem, we'll uh, put them to the side and make sure we get them medical attention if necessary. But so they're, they're, they're trained that way in, in training. And so when a real incident occurs, uh, it becomes second nature that, okay, we need to go to rehab. We went through a bottle of air, uh, or we've done some, you know, like 20 minutes of, uh, uh, extensive, uh, working and, and we'll just go uh, to rehab. 
What about the equipment? And we'll talk on the equipment in the winter time because I think it's a little more obvious, like, mm-hmm. you know, making sure the water keeps moving so it doesn't freeze in the truck and that kind of thing. But what about, um, I guess, the high heat on your trucks, your ladders? Is there anything in particular that you guys have to watch out for when we're dealing with 90s and the heat index over 100? Um, does the equipment ever, like, you know, you're trying to make sure it doesn't break down or, or anything? Overheat. Or overheat, yeah. Well, certainly if you're um, running a, a piece of equipment, you're going to be monitoring uh, the engine temperature and, and, and the oil temp or the oil pressure and, and those types of things. And so if, um, just like staff vehicles, if we're in a long-term event, sometimes we'll even open the hoods on those just to keep them cooler. Um, so the pump operator, whoever's running uh, in an incident, would be monitoring um, all the different uh, gauges to make sure that the pump is not going to overheat when it's being uh, kind of tasked in a high heat environment. Mm-hmm. Same for in, in the cold environment. You know, they they would be monitoring those types of things, uh, making sure, like you said, things don't freeze up. Um, we carry salt in the winter, so we throw salt down. So uh, we try to keep our footing. But you yeah. know, the, we our our business is putting water on things when it's on <laughs> fire. So mm-hmm. um, in, in cold environments, we're going to be dealing with a lot more ice than than we do in the heated environment. Right. Um, but, you know, as, as you go inside a building, um, it doesn't really matter uh, whether it's winter or yeah. summer. If, if, if there's a fire, the temperature is going to be about the same inside. Yeah. It's when you come out that you have to deal with those extremes. Wow. Um, a little bit more than uh, we'll transition over to winter now. Uh, when, you know, you're wearing all the equipment in the summer, of course, it's like bench pressing, you know, 80 pounds outside when mm-hmm. it's so hot and that'd be hard to work out outside. So that's just carrying the equipment in the winter or in the summertime. Um, but when I had worked on my story previously, they had also said in the in the winter, you know, it's very cold around you. And yes, you have equipment that's keeping you warm. But then sometimes that's also a challenge because your body's sweating, but it's cold, and it's like just kind of a mix-up of like what's going on that they're dealing with. Yeah, some of the most uh, extreme conditions I've ever worked in is, is uh, sub-freezing conditions where you are um, maybe a, a fighting a fire from the exterior and you're getting all that overspray or mm-hmm. uh, just mist and you end up getting, building up layers of ice. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's difficult because you are perspiring inside that gear, even though the gear allows uh, some... some uh, some exchange of air, the, the 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 body can still kind of perspire and and try to cool itself down, and it'll do that even in the winter time. But when it does that, then you start getting really cold. So, yeah. um, in the inverse of the summertime, we put them in the back of like a medic and mm-hmm. warm them up, get them out of the wet clothing as much as possible, and and keep a change of clothing available to them if if the, they're going to be there a long term. Uh, we may even have to change out turnout gear. Um, just because of the fact that when it gets wet, obviously in, in a very cold environment, that's just going to um, take the core temperature down. Yeah, that just makes it worse. Um, I actually have a, a question that I've always wondered um, because I see when, unfortunately, some vehicles or people wind up in a frozen pond or a frozen lake. Yeah. To me, it's always appears that it's the firefighters that are going in to do the rescues. Uh, am I mistaken on that? And there is there any kind of like training that you guys do for those type of situations? Because they're just so extreme. Yeah, and scary. Ice rescue is something that we actually train on annually. We uh, we utilize some static um, water locations here in, in our community where we'll uh, we'll go out with um, an ice rescue suit, which we have available to us, um, and they will go out with a sled, and you have to uh, break through the ice, and and we will actually. Um, 
show how we can bring somebody out that's like submerged um, or at least have their head out of the water, we'll get them onto the sled and get them out. Um, so we practice that on an annual basis, and, and there is a certification level that we have some people that are instructors in that uh, wow. type of rescue. So for the most part, for us here in our community, we, uh, we not necessarily certify everyone, but mm-hmm. we make sure that everyone has gone through that training. They've been in the suits. They know how, uh, how those suits protect them as far as um, keeping the cold water away. They're a very insulated uh, um, barriers, mm-hmm. and it does provide some flotation. And so that's that's what we would wear if there's somebody to be rescued in an icy or a frozen condition. It's mm, crazy. I um, one thing that had stuck out in my mind was when I worked on my story in the winter. Um, you know, they had said additional crews. So even if it's just a, a, a nine, and not just I don't mean to say just, even if it's a nine one one call that you know someone had fallen and they need a paramedic's help, they'll send the fire truck too. Um, because a lot of times driveways and they have no clear path to get up to the house. Um, and that just seemed, I went out on a call and it was, I mean, I watched them take the bed out and they, you know, had to like maneuver it up this icy driveway and, you know, get the person out safely. And, and it just, I mean, it it seemed scary and Mm -hmm. it just seemed like so much more work on something that's already a stressful job. Um, you know, and they're working as fast as they can to get someone safely in an ambulance and off to the hospital. So what's that like? And, and maybe what can people do in the winter to make sure they're helping, you know, you guys out as much as possible? Well, first, I love that you called it the uh, bed. So Gurney, <laughs> um, I just escaped my mind. But we do send additional resources out when it's um, cold weather incident and there's a high uh, amount of snow mm-hmm. uh, fall. So that if, if there is a... Um, a patient to be removed, even from uh, a home that's um, you know doesn't have stairs or whatever, mm-hmm. you still need to remove a lot of that snow because the cot has wheels and it's difficult to maneuver that. Uh, otherwise, you're going to carry the person from wherever they may be to the back of the medic. Um, so what people could do if, if they have the physical capabilities of doing it is keeping those areas clear, especially sidewalks and walks near the house. I know it may be challenging to keep the entire driveway uh, cleared, and mm-hmm. if necessary, we'll even call out some of our uh, um, road department uh, crews to help plow in front of our vehicles if necessary. Um, the newest medic we just purchased is, is something of, of we put four-wheel drive, or we bought it with a four-wheel drive uh, uh, undercarriage. That way we could maybe go off-road more or into a snowy condition more, yeah. uh, not relying on somebody from plowing. But a homeowner could really benefit us by keeping their drive and and sidewalks and, and steps clear of snow and ice the best they can. Now, if they don't have the physical capabilities of doing that, then they may need to you know, hire a neighbor or um, a right. friend or a family member to come and make sure that that uh, is done the best they can. Yeah, be kind to your neighbors. And mm-hmm. just if you've got a son or a, a, you know, a younger mm-hmm. kid that can shovel, go right. help out the older neighbors because that's the, you don't want to send someone that's older and, and really shouldn't be shoveling and they feel like yeah. they should and then they need to, you know, something bad could happen that way too. Um, well, all across, I mean, you've, I think you guys have even mentioned in the weather uh, that, that we do have a high incident of uh, people having cardiac or yeah. chest mm-hmm. uh, complaints um, after they've you go out there and you exercise and, and you're not prepared for doing that mm-hmm. and and shoveling snow is is very uh, exhausting and so people with cardiac history or people that uh, are not really as physically fit as they should be may not want to do those kinds of things um, mm-hmm. uh, just jumping right into it and clearing snow 
Yeah. Do you have any suggestions? I know everybody uh, feels they know what to do when their house is on fire, yeah. um, but it's a moment of panic. Right. I mean, what are some key things that you should do if you realize that your house is on fire? Like, what should you be doing first? Well, immediately alert everyone that there is a fire and get out. And, and we tell, even from when we first have any interaction with uh, school-aged children or even preschool kids, get out and stay out. Mm-hmm. No matter what you do, get out, stay out, contact 911 um, via a cell phone or a neighbor's um, telephone, but don't stay inside the building mm-hmm. because yeah. um, so so quickly can you be overcome by that smoke um, that that you can't, you know, able, able to uh, extricate yourself from a structure. Um, so we, we tell everybody to get out, stay out, and we ask folks to create like a meeting place. So... You know, may not you may not be able to get out your front door. You may have to have, uh, or no, an alternative way of getting out. We we teach our kids, all right, no two ways out. You always have your window in your bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be even if it's the second floor. You need to prepare and and practice that um, with your parents, um, kind of guiding you that if the fire or a smoke detector goes off, you uh, feel the door with the back of your hand. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing. Make sure that when you're sleeping, sleep with the bedroom doors closed. Mm. That way the smoke doesn't get into you if, if there's a fire that develops anywhere else in the house. And if the door is warm, um, you don't open that door. You go out your window. Yeah. So we, we teach people to uh, kind of create like an evacuation plan. And um, it's even great to post it on your refrigerator and kind of put it there where people are going to see it on a regular basis so that they know, all right, this is our second way out. This is our primary way out. And this is where we're going to go meet if there's a fire. I'll say that if you were to ask my mom growing up, she hated fire prevention week, but loved it when I was in school because every year when we had fire prevention week, I would come home and I'd be in a tizzy. <laughs> what is our plan? Where are we mom! going? Yeah. But I guess, you know, always a positive thing. But she said I would get so worked up at oh. fire prevention week. Um, I have a question uh, about uh, alarm fires like you always hear like three alarm four oh, alarm yeah. five alarm mm-hmm. fire what does it mean and what warrants the higher numbers yeah. yeah well typically an alarm would be whatever your community's established as um, a first out response to a structure fire so if it's a residential location we have we have a, an assignment that we will uh, put together uh, based on what that may be so it may be uh, three fire engines and a ladder truck a staff officer and a medic unit as a as a first alarm assignment. Now, if if the conditions warrant, and um, you know maybe this fire is such a size that it's maybe uh, causing some risk to exposure uh, occupancies, we will call for a second alarm. So the second alarm really duplicates the first alarm. So you're going to get the double doubling of the equipment. So every time you go to another alarm, you're really essentially in most cases. Um, like third alarm would be triple the number of uh, first wow. alarm assignments. So, so does that mean um, like another firehouse joining you, or absolutely? We, okay. we, I mean, larger communities have the resources available inside their community that they can do two and three alarms. Mm-hmm. But most of the smaller agencies rely heavily on mutual aid, mm-hmm. even on first alarm assignments. We can't cover our communities well enough with with just the resources that are on duty. So we rely on our mutual aid partners, and we're very blessed in our area to have uh, very good relationships with all of our uh, uh, partner agencies that are our, uh, our neighbors. 
That's wonderful to, to have that sense of community, whether your city is big enough, like you said, or not, or the fire is so big that it doesn't matter. You need as mm-hmm. many hands on deck as possible. Um, this is and kind that's of true for the weather. We will call for additional yeah. resources or special mm-hmm. calls, especially uh, when it's uh, extreme weather, whether it be cold or hot, yeah. just because we know that our crews are not going to be able to function at their maximum. Right. You just need uh, the extra personnel. Yeah. yeah, quicker breaks so you can get more people in and out and keep them safe. Um, this is kind of a personal question, but uh, do you have, and I mean, let's see, three decades now that you have been um, a paramedic and firefighter, what, is there anything in your mind that sticks out weather related, whether it's recently or when you first started or something that was jarring or you were just impressed by the amount of teamwork or you truly were like, these are the worst conditions I've had to, I've had to work in? Well, I um um, you think you mentioned at the uh, onset that I worked in Xenia. So mm-hmm. I became very weather aware when I was uh, a young person when the 1974 tornado occurred. Um, and um, I did witness that tornado and um, had yes. family members that were impacted by that tornado. Wow. And from that moment on and growing up in the Xenia and Greene County area, uh, tornadic activity became something of um, unnecessarily fearful, but we were very heightened to being mm-hmm. weather sensitive whenever there were weather conditions like that. Um, and advanced to 2002 when, when the tornado came through um, Xenia again, I don't know if you, or 2000, yeah. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. in September. Um, I was on duty that day. Wow. So uh, when I was first hired in, in the city, um, we would even put out uh, weather spotters whenever we had uh, tornado uh, watch conditions, mm-hmm. um, they, they wanted people on the west side of the community kind of watching, and then they would put out first responders, whether it be police or fire, mm-hmm. to kind of just go out and watch. So mm. that mindset really kind of stuck with everyone. And so when the 2000 tornado hit, um, you know, it, it was it was uh, impactful as far as uh, it was a EF4, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and it flattened a, a lot of uh, a lot of homes. Not necessarily as bad as the EF5 that happened in 74, of course, but um, fortunately only one person passed that day versus in 74. But those are some of the worst conditions that I'd ever worked in uh, that were related to weather, that uh, just just seeing the impact and and, uh, the power and force that the weather can can bring um, to bear, especially with a tornado, is uh, is quite impressive. Yeah. I did not know that. I didn't know that you experienced both. But yes, in Xenia, I mean... Anyone that is from the area has family from the area, mm-hmm. even outside of Xenia. People know about the 74 tornado. And yes, the, the second tornado for us to have an EF4, that's that's a strong, powerful tornado yep. for Ohio. Yeah. Um, you have been so helpful and insightful. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's wonderful that you were able to take some time with us out of your busy day to talk. And, and we really appreciate learning more from you, um, Chief Leeming. So thank you so much. Oh, I well, appreciate it. Thank you. That was really great, McCall, to kind of go back a lot more in depth than, you mm-hmm. know, a television story's quick that I did the sweeps piece. And it only focused on winter weather and first responders. So, yeah. man, Chief Leeming is just full of knowledge. That was he awesome. Is. I'm sure I'm going to be thinking about questions <laughs> right? like after this. And I'm like, oh, I need to ask him. And I will 
you know, reach out to him, say, we'll and be ask him. him. So if anybody are listening and they have any yeah. questions, you know, send them in to us. We'll definitely ask and, you know, we'll respond and let you know the answer. Right. Really, any of our guests, if you ever have a question yeah. after listening to an episode that you want us to follow up with, yeah. um, we're really lucky that, that we've got pretty good relationships with all of our guests and, and we'd love to reach back out for you. So mm-hmm. um, shoot us an email, tweet at us, post on our Facebook pages uh, to communicate with us and, and we will do those follow up questions for you. All right. One of my favorite parts. Yay. Astronomy. Um, So we are looking into the sky in July. Uh, Mars, by the way, is a great planet in July. It is uh, very bright and it usually rises uh, around midnight or so. And it is in the southern sky almost all night long. So when you have a clear sky and you Mm -hmm. look to the south and you're like, what is that bright thing? It's out every single night. It's it's likely Mars. So heads up, that's a bonus planet. Um, July 14th through the 16th, you get to see Mercury, Venus, and the moon. I always like when the moon is close to a planet because it makes it easier, especially mm-hmm. for people who are just maybe starting to do some stargazing. Uh, the moon is your guide. So it'll be a waxing crescent moon on the 14th. It'll be pretty thin. Um, and you want to give yourself a good view of the western sky without a lot of trees around because it is going to be pretty close to the horizon. But give yourself about an hour or so after sunset, which at this point is around 9 o'clock. And um, you'll find the moon, and right next to the moon is Mercury. Then on the 15th, right next to the moon will be Venus. Venus is really, really bright, so uh, it'll look better than Mercury, but um, they all three line up. It'll go the moon in the top left, then Venus, and then Mercury. That's the lineup you'll see on the 16th, same time, same direction. So look for that. And speaking of the sky, yeah. something really cool happened earlier this month. Mm-hmm. On July 8th, we had a fireball that occurred 600 people That's pretty cool. reported seeing it yeah. uh, to the American Meteor Society, mm-hmm. and it was stretched across nine states. Yes. If you've never seen a fireball, it is amazing. It really is. If you know what a meteor looks like, it's very quick, and it just, you know, uh, not even a second long, you'll see right. in the sky. Fireball is a meteor, but it lasts much longer, yeah. much brighter. It's actually the equivalent brightness of Venus, yes. if I'm correct. You are right. Um, and sometimes the tail can look a little green, mm-hmm. um, and it streaks across the sky, much like a, a meteor, as I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, really cool. I've seen them before, and it'll stop you in your tracks because of how bright it is. Well, yeah, and it's almost alarming because yeah. you're like, what was that? I know. Because it does not look like a shooting star. I mean, no. it is bigger, it's brighter. It almost looks like it's, well, it is basically exploding yeah. as because when a, meteor, uh, a meteoroid enters the atmosphere, then it's called a meteor. And then as it's burning up through the atmosphere, if it actually reaches the ground, then it's a meteorite. Mm. So it's kind of cool yeah. to think about this piece of space rock has a name when it's out of our atmosphere. The moment it enters the atmosphere, it becomes a meteor or a fireball, depending yep. on its brightness. And then if it lasts through the atmosphere without completely burning up, yeah. and then you get some space rock that hits the ground, then it becomes um, a meteorite, which is what it's called. And there have been fireballs. There was one, I think it was either earlier this year, that um, landed in Lake Michigan. Remember? Yeah. And that they actually uh, categorized that as a bolide. Yes, yes. That's B-O-L-I-D-E. Yes. And that's because it had an audible feature, meaning people heard hear it, it yeah. and, and it exploded and yeah. made it to the ground. Talk about if, alarming. Yeah. <laughs> we actually have a whole glossary of different uh, space terms space terms on our Sky Witness 7 page, and you yeah. can check that out there. Also, Kirstie put together a really great video talking about the fireball, and it shows the fireball. We got some great footage. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find that on 
any of your streaming devices, whether it's on the WHIO app, the weather app, yeah. online, or if you have something like Roku, right? Um, look smart for TVs. our WHIO TV app on there. Uh, your smart TVs, the yeah. videos there as well. So lots of places to see that awesome footage. Yeah, and I mean fireballs. We've actually seen and. Uh, recorded one off of our weather camera network. Mm-hmm. Remember we that? Did. Was it was up really in Troy. Cool. We were very lucky that we uh, had our camera that captured it. I know. Talk about crazy. Nowadays, with all the ways to get video footage, it's yeah. just amazing. It's really neat. And fireballs are really cool to see, of course, because they are rare, but they're not technically rare because they're actually occurring all the time. Mm-hmm. Just sometimes they occur in the middle of the day where it's so bright that you don't see Venus all day long because it's bright, but it's not bright enough to beat the sun. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing for the fireballs. Also, a lot of them occur over the ocean so yeah, yeah we miss out and speaking of astronomy if you have any questions i'm telling yes. you right now any questions about the sky send them send in. them to us because our next guest yeah. is joe childers from the boonshaft he's an astronomer yeah um the boonshaft museum museum if i could speak <laughs> properly uh in dayton yeah and he's going to come on and he's got a so plethora of so topics that he's going to talk about and yeah. he's open to any topics that we may have Kirsty yes. and i mm-hmm. um that's why i say if you have any questions send them into us we may ask him your question yeah here on our podcast yeah and we'll uh we'll remind you uh next week when we record it we'll probably post on twitter maybe that mm. people can tweet some questions to us yeah that'd be great so we can get some going so watch for watch our twitter feeds um and we will we will post that against you don't forget um speaking of things you won't forget uh it is our teachable moment today Mm -hmm. um which mccall actually did a little piece on this in our evening news um it's not from ohio this was a amazing video that was captured out of arizona of a dust storm that is also aka a haboob yeah, you may have heard that term starting yes. to pop up. I feel like nowadays these weather terms, yeah, you know, they, they start so to much trend. More popular. <laughs> yeah, and Haboob is such a uh, an odd name yeah. that I feel like people are you talking about think. it. But basically, what happens is you get an arid, very dry uh, environment. Basically, whether it's you know the desert southwest, mm-hmm. um, Australia has. miles and miles and miles of just desert dry land right the desert out uh in africa you get a strong thunderstorm that develops Mm -hmm. as the storm is beginning to collapse it can create a downburst of strong winds that will then hit the ground and they hit the ground so hard uh, that they create a gust front and winds up to 70 miles an hour were reported with this haboob that was caught on video and what it is it's uh, a, a mile long <laughs> up into the sky wall of dust. Yeah. It looks like a tsunami, but dirt. But dust and dirt. And it just travels for for miles. Yeah. Um, and it was seen in Phoenix, Arizona earlier this week. I mean, it's like horrifying to see, actually. The yeah. video is quite alarming. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people, if you live in Arizona, this isn't like, you You know, this is your weather yeah. feature that they, they, they get and they see these types of dust storms. Um, but I didn't realize that uh, they could go up to 10,000 feet. FYI, like that mm, is insane yeah. to me yeah. to have um, a haboob that could create a wall of dust up to 10,000 yeah. feet. Yeah, and the video footage that we have is incredible. Yeah. Um, and as I mentioned, the wind's up to 70 miles an hour. Like the weather service in that area sent out, you know, hazardous warnings. Right. Cause not only are the winds insane, um, but the visibility drops to near zero. zero. So right. if you're on the road, and you're traveling anywhere near it. It's it's a very scary situation. And those people that live down that way know what they're supposed to do when, when right. this occurs. You know, just pull over, let this pass on by. It'll take a little bit before it gets through, but you have to wait until it clears up. And yeah. plus, it's not great for your engine. Like, you don't want your right. engine turned on driving yeah. into it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was associated with a thunderstorm complex. So not only did they get the dust storm out ahead of it, yeah. they also were dealing with really strong just thunderstorms like yeah. a couple miles away. Yeah. So crazy, crazy. Um, I'm sure you've seen the video on social media. If not, look it up because yeah. it's it's pretty easy to find. Uh, I feel like this was an action-packed episode. Yeah. It was really interesting. I'm glad that we got together. At our last little mini episode was yes. just me talking about, you know, some previous episodes we've had um, and that you and I were like constantly we're trying. trying to squeeze our vacation time in while we get it. We are. We're staying late. We're getting these together for you. And hopefully you uh, continue to listen to Cloudy with the Chance of Podcast and that you have found us and that you will continue to listen. Don't forget to subscribe because that way mm-hmm. you can continue to get our new episodes whenever they drop. We appreciate if you could rate the podcast and also leave a review uh, we love feedback but rating our podcast just helps in general yeah and you can listen to it on uh, Google Play Apple iTunes Stitcher and WHIO.com not only can you continue to listen to new ones that are coming out but you can also go back and listen to previous episodes thanks for joining us we'll see you next time for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.